0: Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We are your hosts, Erica Switzer and Martha Guth. You were just listening to Amanda Kiesmat on the cello and Sylvain Bergeron on the Theorbo introducing us
1: into the world of Renaissance song. Yes, the title of that was in my best Italian. Io vedgio i campi verde fecondi, brava! Yes. Uh, so, yes, we are indeed delving into early, early song today, and we're talking real early, like uh, late 16th, early 17th century Florentine song. And, of course, when we talk about Florence, you have to talk about the Medici family. This is the High Renaissance, the center of musical innovation, which, of course, followed the artistic innovation that had been going on for quite some time already in Florence. So, a little word about musicians and artistic patrons. Musicians and artists have really always had a love-hate relationship with wealth and what comes along with it. And typically, um, and up to this very day, classical musicians rely on patrons to support what they do. The biggest musical companies in the world still don't support themselves on ticket sales alone, and they vie for wealthy donors. This, of course, also happens on an individual level as well. This, uh, this was essentially the height of this practice in Florence with the Medici family. They were a family and political dynasty that eventually grew initially through textile trading, I believe through wool in the 14th century to um, being a ducal power and uh, founding their own bank. Uh, It was in fact the largest bank in Europe in the 15th century. They really became one of the most powerful families in the Renaissance. They were responsible For lots and lots of interesting things that happened in Florence, I think actually most interesting to me was a series of covert tunnels called the Vasari Corridor, and that was named for the man who designed them. And they went throughout Florence and most famously over the Ponte Vecchio, which means old bridge, Uh, and that's a bridge that's lined with storefronts that that house jewelers now that led out of town to the Pitti Palace, which was their residence, to the offices of the Uffizi, which is where they worked. Uh, and this was a way for the family to move about without being seen by their enemies, and to escape should the need arise. That's so cool! I want to go on a tour of those. I know. Yeah, me too. I don't know how you can how you get to do that. Apparently, I think it's quite difficult to 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 get into those. Be so cool. So at any rate, they are responsible for the artistic works of Donatello, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Fra Angelo, it goes on and on. Sorry, that was Fra Angelico. In fact, not Fra Angelo. <laughs> um, they were also a patron of Galileo, by the way, who tutored their kids.
0: Tutored their kids. Can you imagine coming home from school at the end of the day? So kids, how was how was school? Oh, it was great. Galileo taught us the coolest things.
1: Yeah, or no, Galileo sucked. It was totally <laughs> boring. <laughs> Also, if you've ever been to the famous Uffizi Gallery, that, of course, uh, the core of that is their family collection. The musicians that the Medici family touched would be the German Heinrich Isaac, the Italian Jacopo Peri, who wrote the first operas, and most notably for us today, Giulio Caccini and his daughter Francesca. They were both employed by the Medici court, and they were major players in the development of solo vocal music. Um, But what I think is even more interesting to us is that his daughter was, in fact, a major player there. Just on a side note, sorry to Mm
0: -hmm. go off topic, but if there's any billionaires listening to this podcast, I just want to, you know, if you feel inspired by the story of the Medici and their impact on the arts... You know, go for it. Invest your money in the future of American music, in the future of Canadian music. Absolutely. And, and see what's possible and how all of those creations from 400, 500 years ago
1: still exist for us today. And still resonate in this world. Absolutely, today. yeah. And with that, <laughs> <laughs> we want to look at the songs of Francesca Caccini today. Here we have O Vive Rose, O Bright Roses.
0: Francesca Caccini, known also in her time as La Cecchina, the little singing bird, was born in Florence in 1587. And I I just need to admit something from the very beginning. I saw the CD cover, which has her name on it, by the way, and all I saw was Caccini, and I assumed it was Giulio Caccini, because I had no idea that he had a daughter. And certainly not that she was a composer of the quality that she is. Yeah, I'll admit to that too. That's embarrassing. (laughs) It it felt a little embarrassing. She was his eldest daughter, and he was, as Martha's already mentioned, a part of the Florentine Camerata, the chamber or the the group of of artists who were um, so prolific in that time, and they were dedicated to the representation of the human soul through music. How beautiful. How beautiful, and something that we can't talk about somehow anymore in 2010. Have you heard anyone say that recently? No. (laughs) I think we should say it more often. I think it's a noble pursuit. It certainly was then. It was the absolute quintessential artistic pursuit was to find and know the human soul and to find its affectations in music and create that. And that's why the music is so stunningly glorious Mm -hmm. and so true to the words. So back to Francesca Caccini. She was the first woman uh, known to have composed opera. She was a prolific composer. She sang and she wrote poetry and she even played several instruments and she taught as well. And she was absolutely surrounded by singers her whole life. She was the daughter of a singer. She was the mother of a singer. She was the wife of a singer, the sister of a singer. And she performed in some of the first operas, uh, including Perry's Euridice which was the second opera ever written in 1600. She often sang in the women's ensembles, in trios of women, and those same ensembles appear in her own compositions. So this is another thing that I learned when reading about Francesca Caccini, is that in her time, she didn't have the right to apply for a job on her own and negotiate a contract that was done by her father, to the point that it wasn't only about her working relationship with a... With a family such as the Medici, it also had to do with her future dowry and the man that she would marry. So in the end, she did serve the Medici for over 20 years. That included a dowry so that she could marry, uh, she married a singer. And that was all a part of the contract, which is incredible. I mean, if
1: you applied for a job today, they don't find you a husband. (laughs) No, they certainly do not. (laughs) Although maybe a good job might land you a good man. I don't know. (laughs)
0: She was beloved by the Medici, and
1: they paid her better than they paid
0: any other musician in their court.
1: Yeah, and interestingly enough, she was in demand in other parts of the world, but when requests were made to have her perform outside of the Medici court, they were denied. They would not let Uh, her go. They owned her. Yeah.
0: There is one surviving opera that she wrote, one surviving manuscript, and many court entertainments, uh, sort of shorter stage works, and the songs that we're hearing today are taken from a collection of 32 solo songs. There are sonnets and madrigals, arias, romanescas, motets, hymns, and canzonetas. In fact, we're hearing three canzonettas and one madrigal. And something, uh, because she was so involved in the world of singing, her notation for singers was crystal clear. She mm. wrote in all kinds of ornamentation, mm. very beautiful phrasing, and she took great care to fill the score with information about the nuances of the poetry and the singing, and she also took particular care with speech rhythm of Italian, and I think that that's what gives these songs such a brilliant uh, spoken quality to them. Some contemporaries remembered her as being fierce and restless, and others remembered her as being always gracious and generous. Either way, or maybe she was all of the above, I wish that I had known her.
1: So to hear some of the fierceness and the restlessness, we have our next piece, Se Move, or If He Decides to Take an Oath, our performers Shannon Mercer, Sylvain Bergeron, Luc Bossejour, and Amanda Kiesmat. our performers, we're going to try something different for our podcasts from now on. we thought up some questions for them to answer, should they be so inclined. Uh, And if you'd like a a sort of more traditional bio, you can go to our website and they will be posted there. That's www.sparksandwirycries.com.
0: So, soprano Shannon Mercer, her hometown is Manitouk, Ontario, which is 30 minutes southeast of Ottawa in the Rideau Township and
1: along the Rideau Canal. Rito Rideau Canal. She can ice skate to work. Yeah, or to Ottawa at least, anyways. If she's got a gig there, it would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and she currently resides in Toronto. Uh, we asked her about a favorite song, whether it be All Time or Current, and she said, that's a hard question. I'm currently working on a concert of Monteverdi and Purcell with the same band, the same group of musicians from this uh, Caccini recording, her buddies, and they'll be embarrassed because... Their nickname is Boots and Lutes, and that's because Amanda, that's Amanda Keysmat and her love boots.
1: All right. And the lutes, I'm, I'm assuming, are referring to the, the instrument, or maybe just the men. I don't know. <laughs> sure. Uh,
0: anyway, she says, I'm enjoying. She loves and she confesses to Purcell on a ground bass. And as for popular song, she likes to listen to the top 40 and likes most of it. Her favourite locale or restaurant, she says, in Montreal, it's Emilio's Pizza Joint, and she goes for the all-dressed pizza, and for those who don't know, that's pepperoni, mushroom, and green pepper. Or, on the snobby side, it's L'Express, and that's an old-style French bistro where the local Montreal celebs hang out. And as for recent concert experiences, she has a performance coming up on November 22nd, and that is of Carissimi Oratorios with Les Voix Baroque in Quebec City as part of the Sacred Early Music Festival there. And recently, she was in the audience at a performance of Orlando Lunaire. Now, this was a mixture of Handel's Orlando Furioso and Schoenberg's Piero Lunaire, and apparently it was Brilliant. I don't know
1: how, yeah.
0: How could it not be amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And that was staged with costumes, and there was a Baroque band as well as modern instruments, including piano, and the conductor was Ashik Aziz. And we also asked about a, a funny concert experience, and she said that that question was easy because she just performed in Not the Messiah. Yes, not the Messiah with Eric Idle of Monty Python fame, who wrote the lyrics, and John Dupre of Spamalot fame. Um, And so this is a mock oratorio of the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian. And basically, it's supposed to be a serious, quote unquote, serious oratorio, complete with classical soloists, full orchestra, chorus, bagpipes, and sheep. Of course, sheep. There's always (laughs) sheep in oratorio. right. You have to see it to believe it. And I think you can, in part, on YouTube. Anyways, she sang a duet with, uh, with a tenor, who I'm pretty sure was Will Ferguson, who... We are
1: going to feature in an upcoming podcast. It's true. And they had a duet
0: called Amor Deus, and it was a Mozartian duet with the lyrics, Oh, and Ah. Thank you for that rendition Erica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Basically, Brian and Judith, these were the character names, are in the sack, and in the ending, well, you can guess... And there's a DVD that was recorded at Royal Albert Hall in October uh, as part of the 40th anniversary of Monty Python. So that's it. Pretty cool.
1: We also asked her what inspired the recording. And she said it's, uh, she said it's a funny story, uh, that having already recorded an English CD, French, German, and even Welsh for Analecta, Uh, our lovely recording company, I thought that it was time to record something Italian. Simple and blonde, I know. Though those are her words, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) So I approached Sylvain with the idea of Italian repertoire and he took it and ran in all sorts of directions. He had suggested Francesca Caccini but didn't know if it would make a good disc. But in the end, after looking through all the manuscripts, we realized there was ample material for this and that there really hadn't been one recently. We asked her what the process of collaborating with four musicians was like and she said that Sylvain deserves a lot of the praise for the recording. He was excited about it and very passionate. Uh, He also helped find the manuscripts and then uh, Luc and she spent an afternoon reading through the sacred material. when they decided on the content of the disc, Sylvain took the ropes and thought up ways to make them more interesting with ritornelli, intros, and different combinations of instruments. And yes, a uh, ritornelli for everyone who doesn't know are repeating phrases that happen, yes, in between instrumental the... sections yes. of music,
0: repeated frequently throughout a work, yeah. in between
1: the vocal lines. Uh, and so this would be, of course, different uh, different instrumentation, ways to make them interesting. The cantonetti are strophic pieces with three to five verses, and so the challenge was to make them more interesting. The cantonetti are, of course, the songs. For the instrumentalists, what role did the poetry play in your preparation? Well, we asked this, in fact, Shannon as well, and she came back to us with some lovely compliments. <laughs> <laughs> and they, when she said, if I can just say one great example of an instrument being sensitive to poetry is in Amanda's beautiful solo piece, Iovet Dui Campi. That is, of course, the piece that we heard at the very beginning of the podcast. She says she painted beautiful images of pastures and verdure with the color she uses in her bowing and her phrasing. It's originally a piece for voice and continuo, but I think it works so beautifully as a piece for cello. Favorite recollections from the recording process, Uh, just discovering the beauty and complexity of the music. Uh, And what role does improvisation play in this repertoire? She says, um, similarly, she says, we played with colors and textures a lot. Uh, but stuck pretty much to all the notes on the page. I had to change some of the word underlay, which is how the text matches up with the music, because some of the phrases were impossible to sing in length. But this brings up an interesting question. Perhaps they weren't concerned with breathing in the middle of a word. However, every trill, every run was on that page, which is why it is so interesting. Very ornate, embellished writing. There wasn't much room for any more. Hmm. Interesting. The next piece that we're going to hear is called Dolce Maria and
0: this is a madrigal typically through composed as opposed to the strophic canzonettas and the other difference is that this is sacred material in honor of the virgin mary and so to match that in the instruments the organ is used to reference sacred music in the church as opposed to using a harpsichord which would be more of a court instrument
1: So our keyboard player is Luc Bossejour. Equally at home, at harpsichord or organ. And on the organ, absolutely. I've had the wonderful pleasure to work with him. He is, uh, aside from being just a sweetheart, is an incredibly passionate player. He is uh, knowledgeable to the extreme about uh, the music that he plays. Uh, One would say he's also a historian as well as a beautiful instrumentalist. Fantastic. Well, here they are with Dolce Maria. Our cellist is Amanda Kiesmat. Her hometown is Montreal. Her favorite restaurant is, well, in fact, she listed about seven or eight of them, but uh, (laughs) is Rumi, which is a tapas and lamb place. Walk and roll. Awesome. Faux Bang in New York. I'm assuming the other two above were in Montreal. Uh, She also says the best burger is La Paris and the best coffee is Art Java. And then she says, OMG, I love food. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've heard her say that in person, too. Yeah. Uh, her most recent concert experiences of the last few weeks was actually some very similar to what Shannon was doing a tour with Les Voix Baroque to Colombia and in Montreal, a tour with Ensemble Arion, hope I'm saying that right, uh, that goes on all year long, the Carissimi oratorios in Quebec City, and a recording with La Nef and Michael Slattery, Dowland in Dublin. She says this weekend coming up, she's got, of course, the Concert of Monteverdi in Persil, uh with the same combination. And uh, the Bieber Vespers with uh, the Studio Musique <laughs> Ancienne de Montréal. And that is not to be confused with Justin Bieber.
0: I can't hear Bieber <laughs> without thinking of Justin. And I've never even listened to I him I know. Before. I don't even know what he sounds like. Uh, anyways, that's the I geeks
1: that we are. <laughs> there you go.
0: We also asked Amanda about the process of collaborating with four musicians and she said, we discuss the music and the text and unanimously decide on the interpretation or also when someone has prepared something, we start with their idea as a base and try to see what we can add to complement that. These guys are hilarious, she said. It's really easy going to work with them all. We still have lots to discuss, of course, but quite a bit happens just naturally. We've known each other a long time in various ensembles. And when we asked about, about her experience of playing poetry, she said mostly what we tried to do in the continuo, uh, pause for continuo, the instruments supporting the vocal singing. Most, most traditionally, harpsichord and viola yeah, da gamba. Right. But yes. It could be any could combination, be any combination. Of, en- of instruments. Mostly what we tried to do in the continuo was to portray specific words or color the phrases in support of the text, especially in the more dramatic works. So it's really just the same as what you do as a pianist in a Schubert song. Sometimes there is an imitative part in the bass when you can hear the words resung or foreshadowed. And then she would try to use the bow to sound like another voice and imitate the exact words that the singer has. Other times we would color a certain word just to emphasize it. And obviously Francesca Caccini did not write any music for solo cello. Instead of breaking the momentum with her, I chose a vocal piece uh, to be the solo for cello. So this is the same song that we played at the beginning of the podcast that that Shannon loves so much. So here, Amanda says, I really did study that text and the word underlay and tried as much as possible to make it sound like it was sung. Very successfully. Yes. We asked her about her favourite recollections from the recording process, and she said, OMG! (laughs) Just that the four of us laughed so much. I really love all three of those guys. The recording went really smoothly and was a pleasure. Also, I should say that I feel lucky and grateful to know them and to play together often. Not always as four, but in different combinations. Inspiring and good to the core people. Amazing artists. Very differently in the final question from what Shannon said, improvisation is simply all over the place for the lute, the guitar, organ, harpsichord, in the way that they realize the figured bass. So, hey, Figured bass. Figured bass is simply a bass line that is provided as the instrumental part for a work of this era. And what that means is there's a single line written in the score. Sometimes there's numbers underneath the bass line, so that, which is referencing certain harmonies that are to be created by the instruments, but really there's a great deal of freedom for the instrumentalist to decide uh, what direction they want to go. So as a cellist, Amanda says, I'm not going to add too many crazy ornaments passing tones and chords because it risks taking attention away from the vocal line. I'm in charge of making sure that the bass line lines up with the voice. However, we do record many transitions and beginnings and ends of pieces that are played in different ways. And in the way that we paint the words, new things can happen every take or rehearsal. It's subtle. The instrumentation was not exactly improvised, but kind of engineered. Some of the music was written for just guitar and voice, and we were adding the other instruments as we felt was necessary and or interesting and or served a purpose in the piece.
1: So our... Lutinist, or theorboist uh,
0: is <laughs> exactly. Sylvain Bergeron. Yeah, Sylvain so plays just about anything with that uh, requires plucking strings. I guess I I've guess seen so. him play uh, baroque guitar yeah. and lute and theorbo, and and he does all of it brilliantly. He's, I like to think him think of him as the Bon Jovi of the theorbo world. He's uh, a rock he's, star. He's a rock star. He's even got rock star hair. Yep, and uh, and. The thior bow, for those of you who don't know, it's a lute. It's a very, it's like a lute on steroids. It's got an incredibly <laughs> long, long neck, very long strings. And most of the strings are actually, I believe, uh, I hope I'm not wrong on this, for resonance. So they make what would be otherwise a slightly quieter instrument have a little more room so that you could perform in bigger spaces. Yeah. The last song that we were going to hear is Camor Senuda, or Let Love Be Bare. Or Naked.
1: Or Naked. <laughs>
2: Cadore sotto i cielo in un che va.
1: Thank you to Analecta. Thank you to Shannon, Amanda, Sylvain, and Luc. We love you all. And as well to uh, Matthew Principe, who is, in fact, of course, dedicated to the representation of the human soul through podcasting. You've been listening to Sparks and Wiery Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica
0: Switzer.